Thanks for joining us for our podcast, Putting It Together. My name is Christina Clayton, one of the co-directors of the Northwest Mental Health Technology Transfer Center. We are part of a national network to disseminate and implement evidence-based practices for mental health into the field. We are coming to you from Seattle, Washington, and our Northwest region covers Alaska, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. However, in this virtual world, we have connected with people from all over, and we are very grateful to connect with you today. One of our goals is to provide free training and technical assistance in mental health topics. And now we are offering a podcast because we were told there weren't many podcasts out these days. Just kidding. But truly, we hope you hear some useful information and or inspiration that helps you put it together when working in this challenging and amazing field we call mental health. You can find out more about us, including our live event calendar, free online courses, resource library, and newsletter sign up by visiting our website at mhttcnetwork.org backslash Northwest. Providing mobile in-person outreach and crisis intervention and evaluation services in behavioral health crises takes immense skill and is a 24-7 job. The launching of the National 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline heightened the need for staff and leadership who have this complex expertise. Workers respond to complex crisis situations, conduct face-to-face assessments, and make determination decisions, utilizing standardized and advanced risk and assessment skills. They can triage to divert from emergency services if that's possible and alternatives exist. Staff develop stabilization and safety plans in collaboration with the person receiving care. Supervisors of these teams and staff provide feedback, ensure exceptional clinical services and effective, efficient program operations and consultation. And these teams complete documentation and safety planning and have to possess an in-depth knowledge of community resources, including the ability to address tailored needs. Being a crisis and or first responder takes a heavy toll. Witnessing crises, suffering, and trauma day after day can really affect your well-being. These roles continue despite a COVID pandemic that is transitioning, but things like job vacancies, insufficient resources, organizational culture, and inadequate training can make a difficult role feel impossible. Professional distance and self-care can suffer when the crises keep happening, meanwhile working in an unsupportive potentially climate where staff wellness may not be prioritized, and because of staff shortages, everyone has to work extra shifts. Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Kira Masseth, talking about topics related to the establishment and maintenance of healthy boundaries between you and the work. We really want to explore with her, how has the pandemic affected people doing in-person crisis work? What have she learned from working with folks doing this kind of work? And how do people stay in the field? Dr. Masseth is a practicing clinical psychologist who splits her professional time between seeing patients at Snohomish Psychology Associates, teaching as a senior instructor at Seattle University, and serving as a co-lead for the Behavioral Health Strike Team for the Washington State Department of Health. She also serves on the state's Disaster Medical Advisory Committee. Her work and research interests focus on resilience and recovery from trauma as well as disaster behavioral health. She has worked abroad extensively in disaster response and with first responders and healthcare workers throughout the United States. 
Dr. Mosseth also conducts trainings and provides presentations to organizations and educational groups about disaster preparedness and resilience building within local communities. Kira, thank you so much for being here again today. And I know today's event that people can view later if they want to watch is the webinar that you've titled, When is the Crisis Really Over? And today I know we're talking about in-person crisis response teams and staff and reflecting on the COVID pandemic, people who were always doing crisis work and they focus on crisis for their jobs. What have you learned about how COVID affected people who were already doing, and, and never mind, everyone felt in crisis, but people who are literally out in person trying to do this kind of work that never stopped. What have you learned from folks doing that kind of work? Yeah, well, I've learned two things primarily. Number one is that it's really incredible what humans are capable of. It's mm. incredible the level of resilience and perseverance that especially I think responders of any kind that are doing support for other people during this time mm -hmm. have shown and continue to show uh, over the last several years. And then the second thing I think that's really important is that it's become clear, I think, to most of us that business as usual isn't going to work, that we need to prioritize at a different level. We've talked about it for a long time, but we need to prioritize at a different level systemically with resources the behavioral health support for the people who do this work. Mm -hmm. They too have been living in a crisis of a pandemic and not just doing it in an occupational way, but living through it with family and friends and coworkers. And so just the stark reality of how essential good boundaries and behavioral health support is in order for people to sustain at all, even mm -hmm. at a minimal level in this work, it's necessary. It's not an option, not a little aside. It's something that we have to include consistently. Mm -hmm. We know that doing crisis work pre-COVID outside of other societal, you know, injustices and atrocities and all of that or natural disasters, that it takes a toll, as you're saying, even if resources and support are there. What are some of the most common things you have heard or experienced or seen? Because I know you've done crisis work yourself, you know, in natural disasters and other kind of settings, even things that everyone else is all also dealing with, but what they're experiencing kind of particularly doing, you know, they're turning this up like five notches because they've got to be yeah. doing crisis work, which already you had to learn to balance how to have a life. And then you're also in this pandemic um, situation. What are the most common things and how that takes a toll on people? The things that I'm hearing the most reflected are the physiological responses that are problematic. So lots of sleep disruption, lots of this revenge bedtime procrastination where people stay up. I know I'm guilty of this from time to time. You're on your phone until some really late hour that's not healthy or productive. And then the brain fog, the cognitive issues. So mm -hmm. physical and cognitive both. I think that the degree of mental confusion and mm -hmm. disorganization and forgetfulness is really, really strong for most people, more mm -hmm. than what it would be uh, under different circumstances of just doing what is already hard work. I think mm -hmm. that that's a little bit of a unique additional toll that the pandemic complications and complexity has taken onto people. Yeah. Well, and also I imagine just generally doing this work outside of the pandemic context, how do people have enough energy left at the end of the day, the week to engage in things that fulfill them or that they feel like they can contribute to? I imagine that if you're a parent, that's really difficult. If you're trying to have a social life or try to have exercise or anything, I mean, you're so exhausted just in every mm -hmm. way possible. How do you do the things to build your resilience and maintain that if that's that cycle of being so yeah. exhausted? Well, I think that it's important to keep in mind what is called the myth of indispensability. 
Mm. And it's a myth that we have to be the one who steps up all the time and does it. And part of what happens in such a large scale, complex situation like we've experienced is that you just can't do everything. And we, that doesn't sit well. People don't like to hear that. Mm-hmm. We don't, we, we like to solve problems and fix things. But the truth mm-hmm. of the matter is, is that the scope of the degree and the degree of the issues that we're facing are things that we can't tackle everything. And so we're, we have to prioritize resources and we have to line things up and just tackle one thing at a time. And I think that you got to keep in mind that you can't do everything and that at some point certain things have to go. And I guess my recommendation in this sort of vein of thinking is that as you're prioritizing and rethinking your goals for the day and even for the work that you have to include in that math somewhere, mm-hmm. the degree of, of yourself, of prioritizing mm-hmm. yourself in that equation, which, you know, honestly, many people haven't done for a long time. Right. So it's not that you just get extra time. It's that you have to reprioritize the time you've got and you have to realize that you can't get everything done and that's okay. Yeah. Well, and I'm also thinking in this connected world, you know, I don't know, you know, where folks doing in-person crisis work are sitting before they go out into the field, you know, and Mm -hmm. what that environment may be like and what those cultures may be like in those agencies, those organizations. Mm -hmm. But I think of that term self-care, which somehow translates to selfish in some ways, which is absolutely not true, but it does feel like it's something you Mm -hmm. need to also do. And how do people value that time? How do people prioritize that time where maybe you just aren't doing anything? And that's really hard with a smartphone. That's really hard in a busy environment. Mm -hmm. That's where I think our downtime is not really even downtime if we aren't planful about it. And so how do people get to that place? I think one of the first questions I would suggest that folks ask themselves is to what degree are you spending any downtime that you have in escape versus recovery and repair Uh, and enjoyment? That concept of escape, like if it's escape, it it doesn't necessarily get you to the end that you're seeking. And that's important from time to time. We all certainly do it. But that insight around if it's on your phone, TikTok, Instagram, whatever, Mm -hmm. that that can be both. But I just would encourage people to kind of think for themselves, is this actually allowing me a chance to refill my cup, so to speak? Or is this just an escape and a way of disassociating from the stuff that I'm dealing with? Um, Because if it's only that latter piece, that's not going to get you refilled. It's not going to give you the energy back that you need to come back to work the next time. So just that piece of evaluation. Yeah. What are things actually doing to, you know, I love that metaphor, the filling of your cup. And it may feel really odd to just be still, you know, especially Mm -hmm. for people doing physical crisis outreach. They have lives, they have responsibilities at home and feeling like going for a walk just feels like the last thing I have time to do. But when people get into this field, have you heard, you know, why do people get into this work? I mean, certainly you mentioned, you know, we want to help, we want to fix things and things aren't always neat and tidy. It's like one of the Mm -hmm. first things you learn when you actually start working in the field is you can have your agenda, you can have your checklist and none of that goes out the window. No, none of that goes according (laughs) to plan. How do we remain true to the reasons we got into this field, but also have that balance of Mm -hmm. expectations and what I'm able to control, which is really not very much. Not much sometimes. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things to keep in mind there is that it's okay to reevaluate and reorient your sense of purpose. Mm. Um, I would strongly encourage people to do that. The reasons why you got into the field might be very different from the reasons that you're in it now. And it doesn't mean 
that the reasons now aren't important and mm-hmm. that they're not meaningful to you, but they're they're likely to be different just because our priorities and our, our sense of motivation changes over time. So one of the things that can help with resilience is looking at purpose as one of those ingredients, purpose, mm-hmm. connection, adaptability, and hope, and really reevaluating like what is it about this type of work? Is it the individual client encounters? Is it the honor of seeing someone on a worse day, but also then getting to walk with them through a really terrible or difficult experience and having the, having the privilege really of being able to, to see that and share that with them. It's really meaningful stuff, but it might be different than what you signed up for originally. So reevaluating purpose is an essential piece of resilience building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think about another metaphor and comes from my sort of background doing outreach. So it wasn't always in a crisis mode, but doing engagement and building rapport. And so when you're already high adrenaline, there's, there's a crisis, you know, do you have to match that adrenaline? You know what I mean? Like it's a crisis. How do we tell our bodies? It's not my crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess physiologically mm-hmm. you've talked about that. So how do people do crisis work? but not get so amped up that they're just literally they're spent and the work isn't even done (laughs) because the work usually doesn't end when that contact is over either. There's things to follow up. There's debriefing, there's talking to the team, there's finding resources, or uh, how do you, how do you appropriately match the crisis that you're trying to help without becoming part of that adrenaline loop, I guess. I think what you're alluding to is is the tendency that all of us have to kind of become chemically, neurologically on this on this neurotransmitter level, kind of addicted to the emergency, right? We get mm. into the adrenaline. We want that dopamine, that rush of like, ooh, mm. this is exciting. And it's hard for us to transition into and out of it. I think what I would encourage people to consider are ways that they can engage with other parts of their life, which mm. are also going to give them some of that chemical payoff, for lack of a better way of saying it. Things that give you a rush that aren't related to crisis response work, things that are very exciting for you to participate in and do maybe some, maybe things with family, maybe things on your own, getting outside, doing adventures of different kind that Mm -hmm. support that same neurotransmitter release, but not related to day job stuff. Being aware of that is number one. And then focusing on behavior change that's consistent with that goal would be number two. Getting your body appropriately, you know, I think of exercise or other techniques or other hobbies Mm -hmm. or other just preservation things that you're talking about may feel, well, I don't have time to go for just a walk to do nothing. It's like, well, it is doing something or reading a book, even though it seems like there's no way I could calm my brain down enough to do that. I'd much rather play on a social media app, but is that just stirring things up or is it helping things settle down so you can come back the next day? And, you know, I think of that yeah. planting planting seed metaphor too, where it may not be this encounter that changes everything for this person, You're but right. are you able to be in a place? And that means being a healthy, balanced as best we can place. So when the person who is in crisis or the situation that demands our attention, we can be as even keeled as we can, because we don't want to jump in and try to meet that because then it may not go as well versus I had this experience. This person was really present. They were listening Mm -hmm. to me. It's hard to do that. If your brain is just bouncing around like all over the place, pinball, maybe I think one of the things we can work on collectively is sort of legitimizing in our own minds, all of those things, like reading a book or going for a walk as pieces of an active coping plan, right? Mm-hmm. If you put it in a plan and get it down on a piece of paper, it legitimizes it somehow as like an official, like, this is what I'm doing on purpose to take care of myself rather than 
I'm just not thinking about work, which seems like you're not allowed to do in many ways that we don't give ourselves permission for that. So if we can put some structure around what we know are, you know, evidence-based effective coping strategies, then Mm -hmm. call it whatever we need to, to Mm -hmm. legitimize that process as part of our yeah, and I don't, I really don't like the term self-care for all the reasons right. that you mentioned. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. just something on the to-do list, but legitimizing right. the, the priority of taking care of ourselves in this work. Yeah. Well, and we know, as we spoke about last time, you know, with the launching of the 988 crisis and suicide lifeline, the addition of many more crisis teams that are supposed to be launching, you know, we really want people to come to the field and stay in the field. So kind of putting this together to kind of have that resilience to stay in that mode of being able to do this as a job. There are people who are bored at their jobs. This is not that, you know, and so they might really need adventure when they get done with the work day. But for folks doing crisis work, it's perhaps just really changing channels, doing something to really recenter kind of physiologically, emotionally, Mm -hmm. so you can kind of stay out here doing Mm -hmm. that work. And it doesn't have to be a burnout job as that I think it's sometimes referred to. Yeah, it just is not a one size fits all model, right? The things that work for some people are not going to work for others. And I use yoga and journaling as my two favorite examples. Like, you know, I don't do either one and it's great for other people. I have a client who loves journaling and it's super helpful for her. I do not like to do that. And there's no wrong thing. So yeah, don't feel guilty because you're not on the the yoga path or something. Yeah. I think that's so true. So I think the main point is do something to counter this really taxing and important work that you're doing so you can stay Mm -hmm. in it. And just feel like you have a long view to be able to do this. So Kira, thank you so much for your insights, your practical and always digestible, very real information, your focus on resilience. You provide hope when things seem overwhelming. It's so important. And I'm so glad you're out here championing these issues. So thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. My pleasure. You can find resources related to the episode in our show notes. So be sure to check those out. Learn more about us by visiting our website at mhttcnetwork.org backslash Northwest. You can also follow us on social media at NWMHTTC. This broadcast is brought to you by the Northwest MHTTC, which is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. However, the content does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. Thank you so much for listening. We look forward to connecting with you again so we can keep putting it together. Take care.